Right, Psalm 138, uh, not super lengthy, so let me read down through it, and then we'll go back and work our way through it. We have another Psalm of David here. David declares, Psalm 138, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Psalm 138, another Psalm of David here. It seems the backdrop we can pick up from just looking at the Psalm itself probably lends itself to verse 7 as far as the context of what was going on. As David expresses, notice there in the seventh verse, though I walk in the midst of trouble. So, David, we know, went through numerous troublesome situations, whether it was issues within his own personal life, struggles with sin on occasion that caused trouble to come into his life, family issues, his struggles with Saul, remember, who caused great difficulty in David's life. Of course, when David ultimately comes to the throne, then he has multiple issues in that capacity as well. The rebellion of his son Absalom, who established sort of a palace coup and tried to usurp the throne from David in a self uh, serving capacity, just trying to take away something for himself, and uh, the, the, the Ahithophel, and just all the different issues. David many a times went through troublesome things. We don't know exactly which situation he is referring to here, but he does mention that during this time he was walking in the midst of trouble and he was dealing with the wrath of his enemies. So it seems to some degree the things that were opposed to David, and again, sometimes our enemies are without right? We all know that. And then there are other times that if we're to be honest, our own enemies are within. And even as Christians, the Bible speaks to at least three, we might say perennial enemies, routine, continual enemies. We have the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, as well as we wrestle with also uh, the devil and the world and our sinful flesh. So there are multiple different enemies that we find ourselves fighting against as well. And sometimes it's forces from without or people from outside coming against us, causing conflict and opposing us and giving difficulty and trouble in our walk in life. Other times it's troubles that we can cause for ourselves. We're just dealing with the troubles within ourselves, whether they are a multitude of different things that we can go through as well. But David is walking in the midst of a troublesome time, and it's from this basis that he writes the things here in this psalm. But notice, though he is clearly walking in the midst of a troublesome time, 
rather than complaining about his frustrations or talking about his struggles, instead, notice David begins this psalm with worship. He says in verse 1 there, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods, there's the term literally there, it could be translated rulers or judges, I will sing praises to you and worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. So though David could have described his troubles, David could have dwelt upon his troubles, he could have expressed all his frustrations and his angst and everything that was going on wrong, here David's led by the Spirit of the Lord to do the exact opposite. David is actually led here to say, you know what, I'm walking in the midst of trouble, but I, I think the most therapeutic and wise thing I can do right now is just to focus on the Lord and not to look at my troubles or to stare at my struggles or to fixate on everything that's going wrong and the troubles that I'm dealing with. And that's hard to do, right? And we all understand that. But David here, very wisely under the spirit of the Lord, he, he takes his focus off of the horizontal and he puts it upon the vertical and he starts this psalm, though he was in the midst of trouble sometimes and dealing with enemies by saying, nonetheless, I will. Notice again, I always bring that emphasis when I see that because that's a, that's a term of a conscious choice. That's exercising the volition uh, his human decision, he didn't say, I, I feel like praising the Lord. He said, I will praise the Lord. Had nothing to do perhaps with how David felt at all. I don't know exactly how he's feeling. Typically, when I'm walking in the midst of trouble, I may not necessarily feel like doing a lot of the things that I should. My feelings may be all over the map, just like yours are at times. Uh, but he says, but I will praise you. And notice he says, I'll praise you with a whole heart. David even said, I don't want to be half-hearted about this. I don't want to just kind of go through the routine motion and be praising the Lord while all the while, in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of honoring God with my lips. The Bible talks about, but my heart is far from him. And the Bible says that we can do that. Jesus himself even quoted from the Old Testament, that very passage where he said, these people worship me in vain for they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so we realize we can all do that, right? I've done that. You've done that before. We can come and start singing a worship song and be in the midst of a, a assembly of the Lord's people. And we're singing the words to the song and we're actually saying the words, but all the while our mind is completely somewhere else. We're thinking about what we got to do tomorrow or what we didn't do today or the errands that we got to take care of or we're thinking about, well, this is going wrong in life right now and my problems over this and we're kind of dwelling on and fixating on those things and we kind of have a divided heart. And the Bible reminds us that if we're going to worship God, he is worthy to be worshiped with our whole heart. That is no half-hearted praise that because of who God is, he deserves wholehearted worship, wholehearted praise. And if we're going to engage in such, we want to be completely there, completely engaged. And, and I can understand that from God's end, certainly. I think it's a more benefit to us as well, but I can certainly understand that from God's benefit because you know, we know in relationships sometimes, particularly in marriages, maybe you've said it before to your spouse in some way, you're here, but you're not really here. And you understand if you're married what that means, you know, is that you're physically present, but you're really not here. Your, your bodily presence is here, but your mind is somewhere else, your heart is somewhere else, and you're dwelling physically in the situation, but you're not engaged, you're, you're not involved, you're, your heart's not here. And, 
and we don't like that relationally as humans, well, how much more? God doesn't want that either. God wants our whole heart. He wants us to be engaged. So we have to kind of make that conscious decision from time to time, despite how we're feeling. You know what? God is worthy of my worship. Yes, I'm going through trouble sometimes, but that is also something God promised would happen on this earth. So, so we have to be really careful because I think one of the biggest mistakes in this you know, book of Psalms has been all about all these expressions of emotions, right? As we come out the end of the study through the book of Psalms and we see also all these constant exhortations towards worship and praising the Lord and singing to the Lord. And, and we have to be really careful because one of the biggest mistakes I think that we can tend to make as God's people is it's almost like we relate to God in direct connection to what's going on circumstantially in our lives. So if we feel like praying, we pray. If we feel like worshiping, we worship. And the reality is, is we have to really get away from that. We have to realize that God is always worthy of our worship. When we don't feel like we need to pray, that's probably when we do need to pray. And when we don't feel like we, we want to read our Bible, that's probably when we do need to say, I will read my Bible. You know, I, I have to say, you know, one of the things that saddens me sometimes pastorally is, you know, people reach out, hey, this is going on, I'm just, my life's blowing up, having problems with this, that, that, or whatever, and say, oh, okay, great, I hope I see you at church tomorrow. Then they don't show up at church, and you're thinking, I, there's, there's a disconnect here. You're telling me your life's falling apart, I'm telling you I know someone who can put your life back together, and you choose to stay away from God and sit in your house and dwell on your troubles instead of coming and being in God's house and experiencing his presence and being encouraged and built up by the Spirit's ministry and the Lord's people. And again, it's too much living by feelings. And that's just a very unhealthy, and let me just further say, it's actually a very immature way to live out our lives. That's how children respond. Children live in light of how they're feeling, and we're always trying to teach them as we're helping them mature. Look, you just, it doesn't matter how you feel. There's an appropriate way to behave, and as Christians, sometimes we can really do a great disservice, and I'm so thankful to see these examples from the Spirit. Here, David, you know, plenty of troublesome things David went through, but he says, you know, I will, Lord. I'm going to praise you with my whole heart, and in fact, he says, I'm not going to let, notice, anything or anyone stand in the way. He says, before the gods. Now, he could be referring to the pagan deities that the other nations worshipped around him, but that, that term that's used there is also translated in other places in the Hebrew, rulers or judges. So it could be he's referring here to the political rulers, the different judges uh, that were sitting upon thrones, and the idea is David saying, I'm not going to be intimidated I'm going to worship God whether everybody else does as well or not. And he says, before the judges, before the rulers, he says, I'm going to sing praises to you. It's something that you deserve. It's something that I want to give to you. And he says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name, he declares there, verse 2. Very interesting that David says, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now, it could very well be that David's actually making that expression in an attitude of faith, because if you remember, the temple was built by who? Solomon, right? So in David's day, they had the tabernacle and, and the portable worship system, all of which the temple had all many of the same components. But remember, God didn't allow David to build the physical temple structure itself. God gave him all the revelation of the plans. It was David's desire. He had the vision for it. David gathered all the supplies. God you know, allowed him to understand the location that it was to be there in Jerusalem. But ultimately, it was Solomon, David's son, who built the temple. 
So it could be that an attitude of faith that David says, even though I cannot get there and worship in the temple, I know where it's going to be and I will worship toward the temple. And the idea is almost in a sense expressing that he was going to worship in an attitude of faith toward a temple that would one day be there. And it's almost as if David's expressing perhaps there, if he's referring to the literal temple, that he was going to praise God's name for what God was going to do. And he was going to worship with a spirit of expectancy and kind of with that heart attitude. You know, it reminds me of uh, what uh, Paul speaks about of Abraham himself in, in regards to Abraham worshiping God for things uh, that had not yet transpired yet, but worshiping an attitude of faith. Speaking of Abraham's worship towards God, Paul says in Romans 4 there, he says, in the presence of him who believed, God who gives life to the dead calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, this is Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb and it says, he, uh, Romans 4.20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, listen, giving glory to God and being con fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he was also able to perform. So in a sense, Abraham, before he even saw God do what he believed God wanted to do or God was going to do, it says he started worshiping God and giving glory to God in advance for what God was going to do, again, in that spirit of expectancy. And I think there's something very valuable. Certainly, God is worthy of our expectant worship, whether it's a promise of God or something that we believe that God is going to do, and he's kind of made that clear to us that here, like David, you know, I'm going to worship toward your holy temple because, God, I believe you're going to do it. I believe this is something that's on your agenda, and I believe it's something that's a part of your plan, so I'm going to start worshiping toward the holy temple, though it's not there yet, because I believe it's something that's on the horizon that God would somehow bring about in due time, and so in that attitude of faith and expectancy, he was worshiping. Now, as he goes on in verse 2, he begins to describe some of the reasons, as if you know th that would be helpful, some of the reasons for worshiping God and giving praise to God. He says, verse 2, I will worship for your loving kindness, and your truth. So this balance, and God is such a wonderfully balanced personage uh, that he's incredibly loving and kind. The idea is he's merciful. He's loyal in his love and his kindness and his mercy. He's not just kind or not just loving. His loving kindness, that is just the tenderness, the gentleness of God's care, and at the same time, he is also a God of truth. That is, he's also a God of justice and righteousness and faithfulness and, and how those things never contradict one another. And this is the thing that is so marvelous and amazing about God is that God can be fully just and fully loving and kind at the same time. And he never has to compromise one or the other. And as human beings, that's almost hard for us to wrap our mind around sometimes because we have a hard problem uh, you know, doing two things that seem to be almost contradictory and not compromising one to be able to do the other. I mean, this is a struggle, again, even in you know, judicial systems. You're trying to uphold the law but, but mingle mercy at the same time. 
And so sometimes, you know, that, that can really get mixed up. Either there's a complete, well, let's just cast away the law and be light on crime and, and, and just, you know, forget law and forget justice and what's right and just, well, we're going to show mercy and so there's just a little slap on the wrist, go out and kill the next person. Go out and do the next drug deal. And that's not good because that's complete compromise. On the same token, there are times where I think that, you know, I, I've been around long enough to watch where there's almost this intense severity of laying down the law just to prove the point with a particular person, and there's no genuine mercy where there was opportunity for exercising some compassion and some reason and consideration in a judicial hearing. And so as, as people, we, we struggle with compromising one or the other, but the amazing thing about God is he is completely just, holy, and righteous, and he's totally loving, merciful, and, and, and all of those things mingled together perfectly. It just makes him so incredible in just who he is that he's able to be both simultaneously without compromising the other. And then he mentions as well, verse 2, this beautiful statement, and I love the way it's rendered in the New King James as well as in the original King James. Some of the other translations kind of modify this, and I, I, I hate to say, though I don't often mention translation comments, I feel like that something gets lost in the other translations because it's translated here in the New King James, for you have magnified your word above all your name. And that Hebrew phrase there, you've magnified, you've magnified your word, that mag, word magnified means to make something greater, to, to increase or to make it become greater. And, and the idea here is he's saying you have magnified, you made something become greater, your, made your word become great above, and the term is to lift above, to exalt in you know, preference or priority above all your name. And you're talking about the name of God. You're talking about God's nature or God's character. The name was always representative of, a, of who a person was, right? If you mention a person's name, you think about that person, what you know about that person. And so when the Bible speaks of the name of God, not just the different names that depict his character and his attributes and his nature, it's a representative of who he was, in his nature. And, and here, think about this, especially imagine to the mind of a Jew as the Holy Spirit is bringing this forth here. In the mind of the Jew, an Orthodox Jew, they reverence the name of God to a degree where they wouldn't even say the name of God. We don't know if it's Yahweh. We don't know if it's Jehovah. It's the YHVH. It's the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. A lot of times they would just say the name. Because they believed the name of God was so holy, it, it wasn't even something that was permissible to be on the lips of a person. When the scribes would record scripture, as they every time would come to the name of God, it is said by tradition that the scribes would literally put down their pen, they would go and take a bath, they would come back, take a new ink pen, write, write the name again. And again, just this the idea of stopping pausing, slowing down, cleansing oneself to be so reverent about the name of God because God was so awesome, so holy, so pure, so righteous. So, so when you're talking about the name of God, the character and nature of God, it's a pretty profound statement when it says here of God, as the Holy Spirit puts this forth, that God himself has magnified, made greater his word above all his name. That shows what a high regard God has for his own word. That God would say such a thing tells us that he has a tremendously high regard for the importance 
and the value of his word. Now, if God has that high of a regard for the scripture, how much regard should we have for scripture? How high and important should the value and the importance of scripture be to us? How incredibly high should our regard be for the word of God if God himself, it says, magnifies his own word above his name? And so again, just this importance here, we, we see this kind of encouragement to us to recognize, man, that is very impressive that God holds his word at that standard that we would seek to have that same attitude towards it as well. He then goes on to say in verse 3, in the day when I cried out to you, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. So again, verse 7, David speaks about walking in the midst of trouble. And when you're in the midst of trouble, a wise thing to do is to call upon the Lord for help. You can't fix your own troubles. David couldn't always solve all his own problems, but he knew that there was one who could help him in his troubles. And all throughout the Psalms and all throughout David's life, even in the Old Testament, we see David. One thing David knew is that David knew that God listens, God answers, and that God has the power to perform things that he could not produce on his own. That's why David slayed Goliath. That's why David had so many great victories in the way that he did, because David, if nothing else, understood one thing. God was powerful, and David was humble enough to recognize that he did not always have the resources to address his own problems. And so often we see David crying out to the Lord very passionately. And David says, in the day when I cried out to you, you answered me. And here David says, I know another reason why God is worthy of me praising him with my whole heart is because he's a God who answers my prayers. He doesn't just listen to my cries. He doesn't just give me an attentive ear. He actually acts and he answers and he accomplishes the things that we call upon him for. And what a wonderful thing, is it not, when there are times where we clearly know that we've cried out to the Lord in a particular situation or for a certain thing, and then when you see God act or you see God answer and move in that specific way, boy, if that does not kind of stir up your heart to want to praise God, I don't know what else would, to realize that, man, the almighty King of Kings heard my request at his throne, and he answered. He heard my little cry, like a, like a, you know, a beggar from a village. He gave me a, a few moments of audience before this king of an empire, and he answered my prayer. And he did something actually for me in a personal way. For David, it seems it was even just helping him with his inward struggles, because he says, he answered me, verse 3, notice, particularly David says, he made me bold with strength in my soul. It seems David was lacking courage. It seems David maybe was growing faint within, and he says, Lord, you embolden me, you strengthen me within my soul. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 3, where it talks about how we can be strengthened with might and power by God's Spirit in the inward man. And sometimes it's not even a matter of God change my circumstances, because sometimes the trouble may not be something God is going to take away. We may have to go through the storm. God may want us to walk in the midst of the troublesome situation to deal with enemies, to learn how to conquer and to overcome. And it may not always be that God changes the circumstance, but at least through the process, the prayer can be, Lord, if you're not going to get me out of this, then Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? And Lord, change me. Help me to know how to, you know, it's often been said before, with God, you'll never fail a test. 
You'll just keep taking it until you pass it. (laughs) And sometimes it's a matter of the Lord saying, listen, I want to strengthen you. I want you to endure through this. I'm trying to build character, so let me strengthen your inward man. You're weak in this area. And so I'm trying to strengthen you to show you that by my power, you can overcome. And, and sometimes God's trying to answer our prayers and our cries in that way to strengthen us in our soul to help us to overcome in whatever we're having to navigate our way through for a season to learn a lesson or whatever it may be. Verse 4, he says, And all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear of the words of your mouth. So he says, Lord, one day I believe, not just me, but I'm believing that all the kings of the earth, when they hear your words, Lord, they're going to want to praise you as well, that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He says, verse 5, Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. David declares, For great is the glory of the Lord. You know, there's one thing that was true of David. I mean, David was just somebody who was always impressed with God. And, and I love that about David. I mean, remember, David was just a young shepherd boy, and before anything really began to transpire in and through his life, he was just this young teenage boy out in the field, playing his harp, singing songs to the Lord. And, and something about David, you know, Psalm 8 speaks of how he just was mesmerized. What is man that you're mindful of him? And, and David just always seemed to be somebody who just was so impressed with who God was and the greatness of God. And here he says, Lord, great is the glory of the Lord. Thinking of the greatness of God, he then says in verse 6, though the Lord is on high, the idea is he's in an exalted place, he's enthroned in the heavens, king of kings, ruling on high, yet, though that's God's position and power, notice he regards the lowly, yet the proud he knows from afar. So notice, God regards the lowly. Though he is the high, awesome, mighty God, the Bible says that he condescends and he regards, that he is to care about, to connect with, to become involved with, to offer his help to the lowly, that is the humble. We might fairly say the grace of God runs downhill. So God's on high. His throne is high above, and the grace of God, the help of God, the favor of God, it runs downhill. So if we lower ourselves, if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then lots of grace can flow into our life, which is what we all need. By the same token, if we're trying to exalt ourselves in pride, and we're trying to lift ourselves up, and we're letting pride puff us up and exalt ourselves, then that kind of just backfires, because God's grace flows downhill. It doesn't flow uphill. And he says here, the proud, the arrogant in heart, God knows from afar. The idea is God distances himself. You know, we see this New Testament concept repeated multiple times in James and First Peter, where the Bible says what? That, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, it's always spoken to me in that concept of that analogy of like, which way do you want God's hand? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And depending upon the condition of my heart, if I'm lowly and humble, God has an open hand and his favor and his help extends and we all need lots of grace and I want grace, but by the same token, if we become proud or stubborn or arrogant, then it's almost as if God says, then I just got to put my hand on your forehead until you're willing to lower yourself and humble yourself and uh, just a wonderful truth to know this is the God he is, but he loves humility. He loves lowliness. Those are those who he interacts with, the proud he 
puts distance from them. He knows them experientially from a distance. David says, verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Again, you notice David's emphasis upon who's going to come to his aid to solve his problems. He's talking about walking in the midst of trouble, dealing with the wrath of his enemies. He says, verse 7, you will revive me. Lord, though they're trying to slay me, though I'm feeling like I am just out of energy and strength and I don't have the, he says, Lord, you will revive me. You'll renew me. And, and you have the power by your spirit to revive my soul, to bring life back again, to breathe fresh life into me. And he says, and you will stretch out your hand against my enemies. Your right hand will save me. Lord, it will be by your hand and your power that my enemies will be dealt with. I don't have to conquer them on my own. Lord, your hand and power will be what helps me to overcome against my enemies. And then this beautiful statement, as David concludes in verse 8, he says, And the Lord will perfect that which concerns me, because your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Reminds us of uh, Psalm 136 from last time. Remember that phrase, his mercy endures forever. And he says, Do not forsake the works of your hands. Notice, David knows who's at work. Lord, the work of your hands. You're the one who's working. Don't forsake your work. I pray your hand would stay involved in my life and in my situation. And that beautiful statement in verse 8 there, what a, something to take hold of for all of ourselves. David says, Lord, you will perfect that which concerns me. That word perfect could be translated to complete or to bring to an end. And so the idea there to complete or bring to an end in the Hebrew term literally indicates to complete something that's a good thing or to bring to an end something that's a bad thing. God can do either. God can complete or accomplish a good thing or God can bring to an end something that's a bad thing or a negative thing, and God is able to do either. And David says, that which concerns me, Lord, you're going to take care of that. You're going to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. You're going to bring to an end the very thing that I am concerned about in my life. And, you know, I think all of us can associate with that statement there because there are lots of things from time to time that concern me and concern you. You're sitting here this evening, and there are things I know because you're human that you're concerned about. And how wonderful to know that God has not changed, that he's not a God of partiality, and that you can take that promise to your own life. Lord, you will complete that which is concerning me. What's concerning you right now? What are you concerned about? You perhaps don't have to be the one to accomplish it. Maybe you're not the one who's going to be able to fix it or bring it to an end or to resolve it or to come up with a solution, but the Lord can perfect. The Lord can complete the situation. He can bring it to an end. He can accomplish that thing that you are concerned about. And how wonderful to rest in that. Lord, I don't know how, but I believe you're going to deal with the thing that's concerning me. And to be able to just hold on to that as a promise from God and to rest in that gives great assurance to our soul. Psalm 139, a very familiar psalm, just speaking tremendously about how much God knows us, how acquainted God is with all of us, his omniscience, that he's fully aware of us. And again, David, no doubt, certainly, 
seems to be the right guy as he would ponder the greatness of God to be the one the Holy Spirit would give these statements to. He says, notice, first of all, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So in verses 1 through 6, David talks about what we often call the omniscience of God. The idea is, uh, theological term means that God is all-knowing, that God knows everything and means he also knows everything about us. And he repeatedly emphasizes that in the psalm. And as David thinks about how well God knows him, how God is acquainted with all of his ways, he says, as he thought about this, he says, the knowledge of, of this reality that you know me so intimately, so completely, he says, it's just too wonderful for me. I can't even attain the full awareness of what that all really means. And the idea is, is David, this was his Hebrew way of saying, it blows my mind. I can't believe this. I just, just blows my mind how well you actually know us as individuals. And listen, to me, this is astonishing too, because think about how many human beings are on this planet. And David says, God, you're the almighty God. You're creating and, and sustaining and overseeing and superintending and supervising and coordinating and, and taking care of everything in human existence, everything in the solar system beyond the earth. And he says, and yet you take the time to know me this well. You're that intimately aware and acquainted with who I am and things about me. I, you can almost sense, David, why he is just so blown away by this. He says, first one, Lord, you've searched, I perhaps would put the emphasis on me? Me? Don't you have other things to go search out, God? <laughs> you searched me, and you've known me? You know, Jesus said, even every hair on her head is numbered by God, that he's that acquainted with us, that he's that interested in our lives? I mean, would to God perhaps we could get other people to be interested in that in our lives, right? And what so much of us struggle with, so many people who deal with insecurities and suicidal tendencies and all, is they feel like nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. Nobody wants to be involved in my life. Nobody understands me. And the reality is, is they need to realize, listen, Psalm 139 says, God cares about you. God knows everything everything about your life. And God wants to know everything about your life. In fact, he's seeking to know you in, in ways beyond you know, comprehension that you could even grasp. He's searching your life continuously, and we can continue to ask him. He's going to say at the end of the psalm to do that. He says, verse 2, you know my sitting down, and you know my rising up. So the idea is God knows when we sit down to take a rest. He's aware every time we take a rest, and sometimes God says, why are you resting? Why are you sitting down? You should be rising up and doing something right now. Why are you sitting there as a pew potato? Why are you sitting down? You shouldn't be sitting down right now. You should be rising up and doing something. Sometimes God says, I, I know you're, you're sitting down. And sometimes God says, finally, I've been waiting for you to take a rest because you've been running around too much. 
And sometimes God says, I'm glad you're finally sitting down. It's about time you sit down, right? And, and God knows us, and he knows whether we should be sitting down or we shouldn't be sitting down. And he knows when we're sitting down. And he also knows, he says there, when we're rising up. In other words, when we get up and we start doing this, God, I've been waiting for you to get up. I'm glad you're finally getting up. Or other times we're rising up and God says, why are you getting up? I want you to sit for a little while longer. But the bottom line is that God knows. He knows whether we're resting. He knows whether we're active and working. He's, he's acquainted with all those things. He says, verse 2, Lord, not only do you know my activity versus my resting, he says, you also understand my thought afar off. The idea is that God's fully acquainted with all of our thinking patterns. And again, I don't know if it's proper English or the proper way to describe that because such things are too wonderful for someone like myself as well. But when he says, you know my thought from afar, the idea isn't that God way up in heaven from afar is knowing our thoughts. The idea is that God knows our thoughts far before they become our thoughts. The complexity of our human brains and how these you know, synapses and electrical signals and impulses happen in these complex computer systems in this ball of meat inside this skull that we have, that before our thoughts actually become thoughts, God knows them afar off. Which means that when you think something or you're about to think something or before you even think something, something transpires and God goes, I know exactly what he's going to think. I, I already know what she's going to think about that. I, I, I don't know why she's going to think that way, but I know that's what she's going to think. Or, or God sees us processing something and God says, oh, I, I really wish they wouldn't think that way. And to think that God, because he knows us and he knows everything about us, he even knows our pre-thinking patterns, why we will think certain ways, why we won't view things maybe mentally the way that we should, sometimes why, and other times, I think God is greatly blessed because God knowing us so well, there are times where God is going, all right, he's going to think, oh, he's going to think right this time, about time. <laughs> Finally, he's going to have the right thought on that. This is only the seventh time we've taken this test, but watch, get all the angels. He's passing this time. He's going to think right. He's going to get some right thoughts and some right ideas. But again, from afar, the pre-thunk thoughts, if that's a word, I just made up a new one. If not, God knows those things. It's amazing. He says, verse 3, and you comprehend my path. You're aware of the path that I'm taking as well as my lying down. So again, the same idea. When I'm journeying, when I'm lying down and resting, God's fully comprehending all that. He says, verse 3, and you are acquainted with all my ways. God is fully acquainted with all my ways. That is, every way that I'm taking, God is fully acquainted. God knows the way that I'm headed right now. God knows the way that I will be headed at a certain point. He's fully acquainted with all of our ways. And that could be the ways in the sense of the things that we're doing. I think sometimes God is acquainted with our ways in the sense of that he just knows our ways our ways, the ways that we operate, the ways that we function, the, you know, the ways perhaps that, that we just kind of can tend to gravitate, gravitate towards because of who we are and how we're wired. And God knows our ways, right? And sometimes as you get to know someone relationally, you know, again, maritally, or as you're raising children, you know, I raised three different kids into adulthood, and I can tell you, they all had their own ways, they shared one way in common. They were all sinful like me. That part was easy. 
But, you know, you get one and they're vanilla, and you get the next one and they're chocolate. And then you think, okay, there's vanilla and chocolate. That's right. That's called a twist, right? Vanilla or chocolate. And then you get a third one, and it's strawberry berry blast explosion. And you go, what? You mean there's a third flavor? There's not just vanilla or chocolate? And God goes, look, I can do lots of combinations with chromosomes. Lots of combinations. And right, and so with your kids, you learn their ways. And you, that's why the Bible says that we're to, you know, to, to help children in the way that they should go. A lot of times people just make that very generic. Oh, the way they're supposed to go, they're supposed to follow the Lord. Well, that's obvious. But we're to raise them in the way in which they should go because each one of them have their own ways. Who they are as a person, their temperament, their callings, the way God's given them different aptitudes. And, and to kind of use one mold for all of our kids, is, it really doesn't work. It's honestly not very loving because God wires and, and designs our kids. And our job is to unpack what God's put in there and to unfold and to understand their ways and who they are and to let them discover that and to kind of help facilitate that and guide them. And again, God's acquainted with all of my ways. I know your ways, Tony. I know your ways. And how wonderful to realize that he knows that about you and relates to you in that way, this understanding way of knowledge. He says, for there is not a word, verse 4, on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So God knows our thoughts and our thoughts prior to thinking them, and the same applies to our words. He says here, Lord, there's not a word that comes to my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows every word that rolls off of my tongue. And again, if I can go a step beyond that, that also means God knows every word before it arrives on my tongue. And in the same way God goes, I know what he's going to think. God's, God, I know exactly what she's going to say. And sometimes God's, I'm, I'm so glad she's going to say that. I, I, I can watch this, watch, watch what she's going to say. She's going to respond right. And then other times God goes, oh, no, here it comes. This argument could have been done, but I know what he's going to say now. And, and before a word is even on our tongue, God knows exactly what our words are going to be. Again, that is how acquainted this God that we know and serve is of us. And again, to understand that God is that aware of us should in one way make us perhaps feel very humbled. In some ways, it also should make us feel very comforted. God, you understand me. I don't even understand myself half the time. I don't know, maybe you're doing better than I am. <laughs> a lot of times I don't understand myself. And it's so wonderful to realize that, God, you understand me. God, you can help me. God, there's nobody better to look to than to you because you understand me so well, my thoughts, my words, my ways. He says, you've hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. That speaks of the protective covering of God. The idea is, the Hebrews, you've surrounded me with a protective enclosure. Lord, before me and behind me, you've, you've encircled me as I go on my ways in God's protective care to guard over our life. And David, again, just, Lord, this is too wonderful. And then he speaks of how God's presence was always something that was a part of his life, no matter where he was. And he says this in verse 7 down through verse 12. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Again, we may think, oh, I, if I run away from God, I'm running away from God. God's faster. <laughs> I'm turning away from God. You, you can't turn away from God. Ultimately, you can't. We say, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? Again, Jonah tried that. Did it work? Didn't work, right? 
No matter where we go, the presence of the Lord can be there. His omnipresence is there trying to beckon us back into relationship with him. Why? Because he loves us, because he knows us so well. So he says, it's a vain thing if I, that he just kind of illustrates this poetically. He says, if I ascend up to heaven, Lord, you're there. If I make my bed, again, opposite direction, all the way in hell, the Hebrew is Sheol, the place or the abode of the dead, behold, you are there. So Lord, if I go to the highest peak or to the lowest valley, God's going to be there. God's with us at the high points of our life. God is with us in the lowest points of our life. A lot of times we sense God in the mountaintop, but a lot of times we think God's not there in the lowest valleys. But the psalmist says, no, Lord, you are there. And if I take the wings of the morning, which speaks of just the the sunbeams, the speed of light traveling across, rising in the east to the west, or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. So, Lord, if I just try and set sail in the morning and sail away and get away from you somehow, I said, I I need to get away from God. He says, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me, indeed, The darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So notice what the psalmist brings to our attention here, that there is nowhere that God is not aware of and can't see. He says, Lord, whether it's the broad daylight or the darkest nightclub that I shouldn't be hanging out in, and isn't it interesting that when people do things like, you know, bars, why, we keep lights dimmed. It's almost like the idea, we're going we're gonna to do bad things, so let's dim the lights, <laughs> right? And now as the church, everybody's thinking it's cool, let's all dim the lights. Let's all dim the lights. And God's going, you're dimming the lights. You think I can't see what you're doing over there in the back corner of the bar? Oh, let's dim the lights. Let's, we're going we're to commit sexual sin, let's dim the lights. You know, as God's going, whoa, what are you doing over there? Right? Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. Did it work? No, it never works. He says, Lord, the, the, the day, the night, he says, the, 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 they're, they're both alike to you. Again, we can't hide from God's awareness. God sees everything. Hebrews 4 says that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we can't escape God's presence. We can't do anything and think God's not aware of it. And again, this is a sobering but important thing. God's not just aware of who we are. He's completely aware of where we're at, what we're doing. His eyes are upon us at all times. And verse 13, he then begins to speak about how God created and designed. He says, Lord, you formed my inward parts. Now notice there, he's not talking about physical frame. That's one thing God did form, our height, our bone structure, you know, the way that we look physically, our hair color, our eye color, and You know, these kind of things are skin colors and tones. But he says here, Lord, you formed my inward parts. That is your personality, your temperament, the aptitudes that you have. Maybe you have more of a mechanical aptitude rather than being someone who's highly intellectual. Maybe you're better working with your hands than you are, you know, writing papers and studying for, you know, books for tests and so forth. You know, maybe you're more wired to do physical labor rather than to have a a white-collar job as a salesperson. And again, we have different likes and dislikes, preferences, and and again, the way God designed us, our personalities, our temperaments. He says, Lord, you, you hardwired all that into us. You made us like that. It's not accidental. 
completely purposeful. He says, Lord, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. The Hebrew term there, covered, is literally to weave or to knit together. That's the idea of a, a covering of a garment is what the Hebrew is implying is that God knit us together in our mother's womb. So that while we're in our mother's womb, God was custom designing. He said, I need a little bit of this color thread. And a little bit of that color thread. And God, like a tapestry, like a workmanship, was knitting us together in the womb of the mother. God is designing and creating. And notice that God is doing such things in the mother's womb. Which means from God's perspective, life has value and purpose in the womb. From the moment of conception. That's God's value system on life, not what culture says, not what legislators say. And this, again, is something that we need to continue to uphold in our culture, that from the womb, he says, God was already involved orchestrating what he wanted, knitting together, custom designing. That baby, while in the womb of its mother, knitting together the parts in exactly the way that he wanted that child to be as an individual, what his plan and purpose was for them as they live out their human life after birth. And he says, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The idea is incredible, God, what you made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows that very well. Again, the idea is, is just amazed at the wonder of how God made us as human beings. I mean, just generally, you need to do a little you know, science study in the human body and the anatomy, I mean, and if it does not blow your mind, the complexity and the order of the human bodies that God has created and how we function and operate, you know, the, the DNA code that exists in all of ourselves, which have capacity to replicate who we are as a human being, but yet, though those cells possess the DNA code to make you exactly who you are, all of those cells as they multiply, 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 though they have the recipe to make the entire you at a certain point by God's design as the body's being formed and God's knitting us together as mother, some of those cells only activate certain parts of the recipe. So they become eyes, but they don't turn on the lung part because they're made to be eyes. And then those same cells that have all the code for the entire recipe of you, they just take this ingredient, this ingredient, and this ingredient because they're going to form a liver. But they have the capacity to make everything that would be you, but in certain cells, only parts of the recipe turn on to make certain parts of the body to create these incredibly complex bodies that God's given to us. Again, the, these wonders of the human body and the value and the the time and care that God puts into creating our human bodies is absolutely the thing that contributes to us understanding the value and the dignity of human life. And for us to understand this is so very, very important to realize that there's no such thing as a mistake. And look, it does not matter how conception comes to pass. What matters is that once conception has happened, that life has value. God is knitting that life together in the mother's womb, and to disregard that is to disregard something that's divine, something that's sacred, something that God is doing, and to disregard that is really an affront to God 
more than anything else because no person is made with errors. And again, this is such an important thing because sometimes as we grow up in our own insecurities and just who we are, things people say to us or our perceptions or we're looking too much at fake book or Facebook, whatever you want to call that, and we're going, oh, oh look at them, look at them, oh, look at me, look at me. And, and again, that, that's their, their image they're conveying of themselves. And then we get all self-deprecating, oh, woe is me and who I am. And, and when the reality is, is you are made exactly the way God wanted you. There's no one else like you. Don't trash something God put a lot of effort into. God put a lot of effort into making you, you. He didn't make you like anybody else. He threw out the mold. He made one of you and fearfully and wonderfully made. There may be things we don't like about ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we don't have value and that God's made mistakes. God fearfully and wonderfully made us exactly the way that we are. And that is essential too. And it's essential to the whole confusion of this conversation of the ridiculous gender confusion that we're trying to indoctrinate into me what is nothing other than a form of just modern day child abuse in young children. To tell, oh, well, we, I, know that you, I know you're created with those biological parts. However, sometimes God has an oopsie. And so you were so we're going to let you figure that out because God wasn't sure because he's, he gets confused sometimes. I mean, this is just an offense to God. It's a devaluing of the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. And I just read an article just recently of, of parents. It was actually on, on Fox News, real conservative, huh? And it was pro for this. Wonderful conservative Fox News. Of, of a young boy who the parents were saying that the Lord, in essence, revealed to them before he could speak, they could sense that he wasn't really a little girl and was supposed to be a boy. And before he could, before he could even speak, our, our son, and we're more thankful to have a son that's alive than a daughter that's dead because she would have ended up killing herself like everyone else if we would have forced her to keep being a little girl the way that she was born. And so during her toddler age years, they started helping transition their toddler, who was biologically born female, to become a male. That is saying that God doesn't make us in a fearfully wonderful way. It's contradicting that. And it is absolute insanity, and to me it is barbaric cruelty, you know, what we are doing to young people and just disregarding God's design and where we are going as a society. He says, verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you, notice, when I was made in secret. And notice, again, look at verse 15, skillfully wrought, skillfully. God was skillfully weaving, skillfully knitting in the lowest parts of the earth. That's just a Hebrew poetic term to speak of the realm of the unseen or a mysterious place. And the idea there is in the womb. In the mysterious, unseen place of the womb, keep in mind, they didn't have ultrasounds in David's day. Wait a minute, we can see. Well, we have ultrasounds now. Praise God. We should be more convinced now, right? We have ultrasounds. But in that day, they didn't have ultrasounds. So to them, in this mysterious, unseen place, the womb, God was skillfully putting together this new child and designing it exactly the way it was to be, says verse 16, your eyes saw my substance. The, the Hebrew there is literally overseeing like an architect, God overseeing the architectural process of the 
unformed child. Notice, yet being unformed, that is in the embryonic stage. In the embryonic stage, God, like an architect, was already superintending. And he already had in his mind, like an architect, the exact blueprint of every single human life in the unformed embryonic stages of cell development. And in your book, he says, they were all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Notice, God has an entire record. God sees a human life like a recorded book, a record that is written out, which means that my life and your life, think of it in that way. It's, it's like a, a book, and everybody's book has different lengths, but it's not our job to determine the length of the book. It is our job to accept God's length of the book and to realize that just like every book, a book has pages and it has chapters, right? And, and chapters transition from this chapter to that chapter, and it may not be a good chapter, but look, let the book keep going. Keep turning the pages. There's another chapter. Don't give up. There's another chapter. But it also means that we live life one day at a time. Life is kind of like you, you get up and you, you turn the page. As tomorrow, turn the page. Man, I really don't like what's on this page. That's fine. Tomorrow morning, you can turn the page again. Uh, you know, to me, it's interesting that the Bible does say to us here, notice, the days fashioned for me, the days. What does the Holy Spirit indicate? How do you live life? One day at a time. We are to live life daily. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has sufficient trouble of its own on this earth. We're to live life daily, one day at a time. Moses said, we saw in an earlier psalm, remember he said, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We're to live life one day at a time. We don't even know what's on the next page. We certainly don't know what's in the next chapter, but we know that God has a record of our life. There are things for us to do. God has chapters of our life. And if you know Jesus Christ, the wonderful thing is there's a really good ending. Doesn't matter what the chapters have been like, there's a really, really awesome ending to the book. He says, in light of these things, how precious also were your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. They would be more in number than the sand on the seashore. Go and grab a handful of sand, let alone all the grains of sand. Imagine that on the whole seashore. When I awake yet, he says... I am, or you, I am still with you. It's almost as if he was surprised. Lord, you know me so well that when I wake up from this mind-blowing experience, you know me that well and you still want to be with me? <laughs> and it's almost as if David's shocked again. But he's speaking of how precious, how valuable and special are God's thoughts towards him. Again, God thinking about David, thinking about you and I constantly. Do you think God has a lot to think about? But he says, your thoughts towards me are more than the grains of the sand on the seashore. That's an incredible amount that God is constantly thinking about you. And here's the better part. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that God's thoughts towards us are not of harm or of evil, but to give us a future and a hope. So God's thinking about you constantly, incessantly, and his thoughts towards you are good. They're precious thoughts. It's not thoughts to bring harm into your life, but thoughts to do good things in your life. God's thinking of the great things that he has in store. Now, David ends the psalm in this unique expression. It's almost as if David is so overwhelmed by the fact that God, in his care and his architectural skill, put our lives together so wonderfully that it's almost as if David despises the fact that anyone would just disregard that and sort of 
spit in God's face and deny God as a creator and the value of human life, I sense that's where he's coming from, where he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. What do bloodthirsty men do? Shed blood. They shed the blood of innocent life. And David was, David was strongly opposed to that because he saw how valuable God's creating of life was. He says, they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect or complete hatred, and I count them as enemies. That's strong language. But I think David was so astounded and believed so strongly in what the prior 18 verses say that David took such a strong stance to say, God, I can't let people around me devalue human life that you so skillfully and kindly and perfectly create. And Lord, I hate people that oppose that reality. Lord, Lord I, there are enemies to everything that you are. And Lord, I, I, with a complete hatred, despise what they're doing in their wickedness, acting as enemies towards you. And David, just with very, I think, passionate, strong language, says that. Now, you may say, oh, David. And what's God doing? God's saying, I knew he was going to think that before he thought it. I even let him write it right there in the Bible. I'm not saying God endorses it, but God's going, like, you never think like that? You never say stuff like that? So God says, oh, just, just, we'll just let it go right there. Go ahead, David, just say it. Just get it out of your system, David. I appreciate your passion that you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, like shedding innocent blood of life. And notice David comes around, verse 23, says, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there be a wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David expresses his frustration, but notice he comes back and he ends in humility and he says, God, I hate the wicked ways of men, but he says, Lord, would you just search me? Because, Lord, I know that I'm a man like everyone else. And, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, he says, would you reveal that to me? And he says, and then lead me away from that wickedness and lead me in the way that's everlasting. That is, lead me in a way that aligns with eternity. And, you know, when you and I understand that there is a God who created our life, knows everything about our life from conception to death, and knows us that well, I think it is just wise and prudent to periodically say to God on a routine basis, Lord, would you just, can you give me an eval? Because, Lord, you know me better than I know myself, and if there's any wicked way in me, Lord, please reveal that to me and get it out of me as soon as possible. Lord, bring me on the way that aligns with eternity because that is ultimately where I'll be with you as my God. Let's stand together. Let's pray. You guys are troopers. I apologize.